welcome to part what, two or episode two us. of what moves us um here is liam henderson and hello johanna randall hi and this time we're in munich at the smart rail conference um, we're here at the smart rail conference um, not only to um, network and find out what else is going on around um, europe with rail um, particularly within the digital world but also because liam was speaking at the smart rail conference today so today is all going to be about what liam was speaking about mobility as a service so just before we get into what your what your presentation was about today can you just explain what mobility as a service means yeah um, often written as m-a-a-s mass um, mobility as a service is a concept that we in the transport industry are trying to work towards whereby it's something it's uh, it's called account-based ticketing and it's a bit like having a subscription service for your travels so you'd pay 200 pounds a month sounds quite cheap to a operator whether it be I'm just making these up a Google Transit or um, city map or anybody Siemens there's lots of companies all trying to sort of build this together so you pay your money per month to this company and then for that you get all your mobility needs so you would use their app and you'd say I need to get from this hotel in Munich to London and it would say it would come back with the search results and would inside it have the ticketing sorted out on your behalf you don't need to worry about how much things are it's all covered in your mobility and it just tells you what to do and that might be that it sends a car to pick you up and take you to a station. It might be that it puts you on a flight, and so it says, uh, go, to the, go to the subway station, take a subway to the airport, get on this flight, and that is all taken care of for you for your fee. But the two concepts that, are, that we haven't yet sorted out properly in mass, the mass world, and one is, if you're paying this money to a company, then you expect them to take care of you. So if the flight's delayed, they should be the people reorganising your journey on your behalf. Um, if you're stuck on a train, they should know that you're stuck on a train and therefore have sort of rerouted the next part of your journey. Send a car to pick you up or have a bike ready for you. One of these scooters, the Lime scooters. In future, some sort of driverless car that's come. Not driverless cars or flying uh, small drones, passenger drones. The second part of it is the preferences. So if I'm paying hundreds of pounds of my money per month, I want to be able to say, never put me on a train that doesn't have a toilet. Or never put me in a polluting car. Or I don't want to walk more than 200 metres at any part of my journey or I don't want to sit with other people on my journey. But these are all personal preferences. So the idea of mass then is that um, one, it isn't necessarily about the transport provider because it works across multiple platforms yeah. and, it, and it's personalised to you based on your account. 
so it depends on you know what you think you will use in terms of your transport needs so it's tailored to your transport needs yeah so and also it allows you to work on your preferences so uh, which i think is interesting that um you know because we're in Munich and you said, you know, if we were travelling back to London today, yeah. you could actually put in there, you know, um, if I'm if I'm concerned about the climate and the environment, which yeah. is a very hot topic, that flying is not an option to me. It yeah. has to, my journey has to be based on a complete land base and it has to be the most environmentally friendly. You could put that in as a preference if you wanted to. Yeah. I mean think about when you booked this hotel. We're in a hotel when we're speaking to you here. Um, when you book a hotel, you go to booking.com and you untick all the boxes that you don't want. Um, I want a swimming pool. I want a. I don't want a minibar in the room. I want it to have a restaurant. I want it to have a 24 hour reception. All of those things are options I now expect to see. And in the transport sphere, the availability of options is inconsistent even within cities, let alone across countries. And I guess the other thing that's great about the mass model is that you, know, you mentioned in your description about if your service is delayed, then it is the mass provider that is responsible for solving your delay. Yes. And, they... and it can reroute you another way. Yeah, and I, I don't, it knows my preferences, so it should be taking care of me, however meets my preferences. So, mass has been talked about for a long time, Yeah, and it sounds great. So, why isn't anybody doing this? Uh, <laughs> some people are doing it, but if you think about this, there's non-rail, we're obviously rail people. There's non-rail um, companies trying to set this up and they find it very easy to engage with line scooters, let's say, because they're a new company, a software platform, and they've plugged this type of thing in. Um, Uber has sort of data feeds. If anything, Uber is kind of a bit like a mobility service, except your only option is a car because you press it on your phone, I need to get there, and it sends you a car and sorts it out. Um, if it charged you per month, then that would be a mass solution. Uh, why are the companies not doing it? It's incredibly complex to offer that to a customer. And if I'm, if you're guaranteeing my service, so my relationship is with you, for example, I bought the expensive package of mobility as a service. So the bells and whistles, minimum wait times, maximum comfort on the whatever transport mode how do you the, the mobility service company guarantee me that service because you don't run the trains and you don't run the planes but you may have a fleet of driverless cars and you may have your own fleet of dockless rental bikes so it's a problem for them is where are all these relationships and deals who is Who's facilitating all of those deals to make this all match up? But that's, um, does the mass provider have to be the transport operator? Or can the transport operator sell its services 
to the mass provider and you have a service level agreement that allows that contractual relationship. Yes, but I think we run the risk, so thinking particularly about the UK, you run the risk, one train operator, because they're all different and they have different commercial incentives. Unless the whole industry gets together and sorts itself out and makes all this information and service uh, standards public, you run the risk of one trade operating company that's a bit more progressive will do a deal with a mass provider and therefore take an example of people in London. If I, as I as a provider, have a deal with one rail company going to Birmingham and not the other one, I'm going to put all my passengers on that rail company I've got to deal with. Now, we as transport people don't want you to go on that train because we've built faster trains for you. But it's all commercial because there's a free-for-all. But you, um, there's, there's kind of a, a few um, points that you raise there because one, you know, it's about the data. Always about the data. So there's a, uh, there's a commercial value in data. Yes. So, does that, I mean, what role does that data play in making it a commercial option for so, providers to develop mass? Okay, so going back a few steps then, this was why well, I was, I hope I conveyed this earlier on in the presentation, but for me to give you all my preferences about the type of seat I want, the type of power socket I want, the fact that I need it to be a USB power socket, the fact that I want to see out the window. The algorithm in the mass system has to be able to see whether the service offers those things. And if I say, absolutely never put me on a mode of transport that doesn't have a power socket, and your train company doesn't provide that information, then my algorithm is going to say, well, it doesn't comply with his preferences, exclude that mode of transport. Or, this driverless car, now they have power sockets and they have, everyone gets a view, put, put them in that. I, as the consumer, will never know that rail was an option that was half as fast, that was half the time, because I've excluded it simply by saying I need to have all of these requirements. And the train companies don't provide those, don't provide data that tells me all of those requirements. So that data is very, very valuable but I don't think that they've got it yet. They haven't recorded their assets. And um, so do you think that's a barrier to providing? Yes. Mass, you know, so, so one, you know, and train operators are getting better at providing data. They are, but take, for example, a seating plan. If I buy a ticket at the moment and I want to choose my seat, I have to go to the train operating company and buy my ticket through them. And some of them will let you actually go to a picture of a carriage and pick the seat you want. But it won't give you any information about the carriage, really. Um, it will just say, there's a plug socket. And it might sort of try and show you whether you're against, whether you can see out the window. But if you buy from a third party retailer, they, they can't see that information. So they can just make a request to book a seat. And you get given, you get reserved whatever seat you get given you then can't change it. But number one, that information needs to be provided in a feed to the retailers, but also it needs to go in a feed that's consistent across 
all train companies. So all train companies, if they say they have a power socket, it needs to say it's a USB one or it's a plug. And that consistency when you're talking about needs within the train yeah. is difficult because you have different types of service because when you're talking about providing I can book a seat, I can, yeah, I can get a window, and that, you very much think of those, um, I'm going to call them luxuries, but they're, they're not really luxuries, <laughs> but they t- you, t- you, t- you tend to associate them with long distance intercity style operators, um, because you can't, you know, you can't book right. uh, a, a, a seat on Thameslink, I mean, you can buy an advanced purchase ticket, yeah. But you can't, you know, even though you may be travelling Brighton to Cambridge now because they go go all the way through, you, you cannot book a seat. You're yeah. just buying your journey. And I think, you know, just to um, refer to another presentation that we heard today um, from the Rail Delivery Group and Robert Nisbet yeah. was that he was talking about the recent fares review. Mm-hmm and about how we need to look at reg- the regulation affairs because it hasn't really changed since privatisation in 1997. And I think the internet was a thing, but it was very early days and our ticketing is still based on a paper-based system. Yeah, but what are you, okay. But it's kind of in the name of mobility as a service. In what are you selling me? But I think Thames when you but when you look at the um, the um, rail settlement plan and the national conditions of rail carriage, yeah, it's selling you a journey, not a seat. Okay. And so you know, do you, does reform? And it wasn't touched on today. It was just talked specifically about the fares and about how we need to react to the tech world yeah. and linked to your personalization as well is because i was i was i was amazed at this fact there are 55 million tickets within the system which i which is more than the adult population of great britain yeah more than there needs to be <laughs> no more so so the system we have would allow personalised everybody to have an individual personal ticket. So the system allows it because it can it can deal with fifty five million journeys or fifty million different ticket types. Yes. So you kind you kind of think math should be deliverable or personalised journeys should be deliverable. Yeah, I mean I agree, and we should. It's not beyond our ability to do that. We just need to shape up, and think of what consumers want. For example, the Thameslink example you gave. There are many assets on a Thameslink train which are quite nice and good, it's air-conditioned. They're not made available to anybody. You can't look up on a feed and see that all the Thameslink trains are air-conditioned versus whatever other train company isn't that runs the same route. Um, And you mentioned about intercity, so that's fine. So one of the other things is obviously regular commuters into their normal day job probably won't rely on the mass service um, each day. They'll rely on it for their weekend journeys if they're going to the country or they're going to visit somebody. It's an unfamiliar journey. But you made the point that 
you think that you expect these what you call luxuries, I call essential things, Wi-Fi on a train, for example. You expect them on a long-distance intercity. So what is the definition for this robot to think? What is the definition of a, a long-distance or intercity journey? Or which point does it draw the line and say, above this distance or time, I now need to look for these options? And that is complex because how do you, you know, because what you think of as long distance will be different to my definition of what I think long distance or intercity or because Brighton is a city, Cambridge is a city. So has Thameslink become an intercity service because it also goes through London, the capital? <laughs> and, and that's so it's, but it's a long distance, it's a long distance service and it's, and those trains yeah. are not fit for the style of service that it now if you're makes. You're doing it end to end. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah um, it is. It's it's a commuter style service. Yeah, but ultimately, ask um, the consumer because it would be the consumer preferences and also these service providers who are going to have who are going to be requiring mm. this information and this conversation simply. What is an intercity mm. service? And <laughs> I mean. Just picking up on your point there about commuters and not needing mass every day yeah. because um, one of the items that has been brought up in, in the fares review is about reacting more to the way people work now because our working yeah. um, methods have changed. We don't go into the office every day. We're more people work more work. <laughs> More people work flexibly. Yeah. <laughs> and that. how does mass solve that problem for you know for the people that still buy a, a season ticket yeah. but actually don't travel five days a week? Does it does it create more value for them? Well, yes, because it might not. It might be that based on your preferences, commuting on a season, commuting by rail is not the best option for you. If you're going in two days a week and it's really cheap to get a coach in. For those two yet why would it not tell you to get a coach unless you've excluded coaches from your preferences but it's ultimate personalized journey. and that is that is the, the complex issue isn't it because coach may be cheaper but i value my time because i think in uk i'm gonna oxford has a very good coach service into the centre of London because it's efficient because the road is quick into the centre of London so so they have picked up they've picked up a demand where it may take a little bit longer but yeah. you get a you know get you get a nice comfy seat they have wi-fi on the coach I think they give you a cup of coffee or something on it I think that yeah so and you can you can choose to work or you can relax and it's met a need and I think yeah. that's that I think that's interesting as opposed to maybe Great Western where they're in over capacity so you can choose to be faster but you may have to stand yeah but that's your choice yes you have an option there equally <laughs> the opposite of, you also have another train Chilton that goes another route and they advertise um, different aspects of the journey so I just I didn't bring it up earlier because I wanted to to bring when you were talking about um, the difference between the if I had a deal, a commercial deal with a particular operator as a mass provider, yeah. because do you think there's a danger that um, based on 
my my own personal affordability that you create a new type of two-tier system those that can afford it and those that can't get the poorer service um it's kind of a two-phase bit there so in the shorter term on our, based on our current fares and ticketing it's quite easy for the mass provider to go to one of the companies going to Birmingham and say give me all your advance tickets and I'll distribute them to my my consumers um, or sell me the tickets at your your advanced rate fixed I have they have to use your service but we'll take the risk of whether we then pass on the a bit like a package to a holiday they will buy all the tickets and then assume that they'll fill them with, mm. their, cus- with their customers consumers so in the short term, it actually could be cheaper for some people. Um, in the longer term, it gets quite interesting because if mass is embedded as the, the standard way that people consume mobility, you completely sever the relationship between the train operator and the consumer. They don't talk to each other. The train operator deals with the mass provider and the mass provider deals with their consumer. That mass provider is likely to be a huge multinational company, much bigger and much more powerful and influential than the little train company. So they will end up, they basically can dictate the fees, the fares they pay, because the consumer will never see the train company. So they're in ultimate control. So... Do you think long term you could almost see a risk to, to operators? It would almost be it would almost it's almost making me think about um, milk milk farmers or, or <laughs> da- dairy farmers where um, they're not being paid the yeah. value for their milk by big multinational corporations, but as the consumer, the price of milk hasn't really gone up in price in the last thirty years because. They've just been keeping the price suppressed. Could you see that as being a risk to transport providers? I could if they severed the relationship. Um, one of the other sort of similar examples is when the price comparison sites came out, websites for airlines, you could never see Ryanair on them. And Ryanair did end up giving its information to them because it needs, because that's how customers were choosing how to fly. And if it didn't show up on this middleman, Kayak or Expedia or something. If it didn't show up on their feed, then the consumer didn't know it was an option. So they had to play the game. So, do you think mass will happen? Um, I think uh, yes, and I think it will happen in one country first, and then a similar version of it will happen elsewhere. In reality, it should probably be that we, across all of Europe, work out what we want out of it for rail. Because also the software companies are based in Silicon Valley, where rail isn't a normal mode there. It's not a traditional standard mode. So why would they be building an algorithm that thinks of rail the same way we think of rail? They're thinking it based on raw statistics. And on raw statistics, it's kind of slow over there. It's not a brilliant passenger experience. And it's delayed a lot. But in the Silicon Valley, though, they are applying the model more to 
road transport, aren't they? And yes. they're specific. I mean, like at the moment, they're looking at it. I mean, I think in San Francisco, it's actually cheaper now to get Uber, isn't it, than to get public transport? Yes. So it's almost like Uber is outpricing public transport, but that is very peculiar to the American market. Um, and I think probably long term, if autonomous vehicles were to come in and you're actually doing away with the main cost of running Uber, which is the person sat in the front of the cab, you could it will become cheap it will be it it will become <laughs> it will become cheaper. Yeah. And that could be a threat to rail in itself, couldn't it? Yes. Because the cost of rail is hugely expensive. The cost of rail is hugely expensive, uh, of running the network, yes. Um, but then you get into a secondary point, which is how are you going to make sure that if you want people... At the moment, most road-based transport pollutes. In a future situation, it may not pollute. It might be all electric. So we can't demonise road transport in the future. We're thinking about the most efficient form of transport. Now, heavily trafficked long-distance routes, the trains go very fast and they've got quite nice facilities on them. So that's fine, they'll score very well. A short little regional route that goes every three and a half hours and there's a diesel train, that's never going to score well against a driverless car or against an Uber probably, or sometimes a bike, because it's slower than a bike. So in rail, I suspect we will come to the point where we need to make decisions around how are we going to show off the things that rail can do? And that's what I'm saying in my presentation. Make the data available. The trains have a restaurant on them. The trains have a buffet. You have all these nice facilities. Show it off. Make sure that the mass algorithm has all those options so that we can get as many options that rail is the only one that can provide into it. And then you're left with, well, lots of these rural routes. When you score them, against other modes transparently will they ever will a mass provider ever put anybody on these modes so i think there are lots of there are lots of threats here yes but i think there's also lots of opportunities there is rail is rail is great and for specific journeys and i think what what we're saying is or what you're saying is that Policymakers, I think, because I think it is probably more for policymakers within transport, within government, and also in transport. They need to be looking at how we open the data, yes. make it available, standardized, standardized, standardized <laughs> open data, so that mass providers can start looking at it and making this information publicly available yeah. across Europe. Not just the UK. Well, if we're doing through journeys, then. We and have to. we probably also need to cooperate more across and work out who is best for delivering that part of the journey. Yes. And, uh, that, and that would be beneficial to. Well, if you leave it to an algorithm, it's going to give you the most efficient based on your preferences, which might not be what we think. So it might not be what we think in terms of we want everyone to use trains but I think it's also interesting as well the the whole preference things because um, 
just because we always say we want something yeah doesn't always necessarily mean that is actually what or 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 not so much not that we always want something just because we say we need something are you about to say people don't know what they want no i'm not (laughs) actually it's um the reason why I mention it is because sometimes we say we want something, yeah. but it's always not necessarily what we need. And yeah. I'm going to take an example from a discussion we were having earlier um, from start of the week yeah. and gym membership, because one of the companies that um, was involved in this program was from Pure Gym yeah. and they do not have swimming pools. And apparently research shows that if you were to ask somebody what they want when they join a gym, yeah. nine out of ten people will say a swimming pool. Yeah. In reality, only one in ten gym users use the swimming pool at a gym. Yeah. And swimming pools are hugely um, expensive. expensive to operate. Yeah. You know, because they have chlorine, they have maintenance, you know, um, uh, and lots you know lots of maintenance costs so they made based on that data they decided not to have pools and i guess that's the thing is i may say you just use the magic word there they use data they use data yes <laughs> but that but that's it is in you know i may say i want the fastest journey yeah but actually in reality i want the cheapest or vice versa so that would be a mass mass provider at the moment because we're on a free-for-all we're heading towards a free-for-all the mass provider will be using data to work out those things and they can put boxes in or they can put like um what do you call them where you move the dial up and down how important is this thing to you and they can make the trade-offs in their system but the very fact that you're having this conversation i don't think this conversation is happening in the policy development departments so what's the answer? The answer is think hard right now about how you want this system to actually operate in future and try and lead the development of some of it. Because it's, it's scary that at some point in future a multinational company is going to put a box in saying a requirement for your preference and just ticking that box will mean that you never go on a train ever again. So I think in our second podcast, yeah. we've explored some interesting issues. I have I have two questions to throw back in. Oh, <laughs> I know you've been interviewing me, but as we have covered last time, is you are you have some experience with High Speed Two, a brand new network that they're building. So do you think High Speed Two, brand new network with all these assets, trains, being procured at the moment? Are we requiring Heisley 2 to generate and provide any of this data? Um, I think it is in the tender. Right. But I can't say either way because it is still a live procurement. And. But do you think that those things have been thought about? Yes. Okay. Yes. That's reassuring then. Yes. Um, I think in general, HS2 has aspirations. I'm going to. Um, say to be a smart railway so to have things like remote condition monitoring to be able for the train to be able to talk to the system but what that will look like I don't know because we are still in a live procurement for the rolling stock 
But they have the opportunity to lead the standardisation by choosing which things we're going to provide and then asking the other operators to match it. So that's one thing to consider for the policy development people. Um, and the second thing I wanted to bring up, which I uh, missed, uh, I forgot to say earlier on, was because of this lack of information available from the train companies, what you see happening is companies developing now crowdsourced or researched information to fill in the gaps on these aspects on trains. So you'll, you probably have used um, an app that tells you where to get off the train for the exit. And it will say get off the first carriage to the second carriage because it's next to the exit that will take you up to this place. So that wasn't given by a train company. That someone else has done it. That's now valuable data that's literally someone going to a station ticking a box and now other people are making money out of it. Um, and there are people who, it already happens in, it happens more so in aviation, but there are whole websites about where, how good each seat on a plane is. And effectively, they're making money from this. And it's all crowdsourced information. So people leaving reviews, someone else is then making money from. But we, that money is being, will be lost from rail because someone else is going to generate the data for us. And given how cash-strapped yeah. rail is, this could be a valuable commercial income stream Yes. if we realised the importance of that data and how that could improve investment in the rail. Yes. I mean, I was talking earlier on on behalf of the Rail Innovation Group, but this is not innovation. This is looking at your assets getting them all digitised and they're working out how much money this is worth. Which could long term be good for the passenger because it could be a way of funding rail and not increasing fares. Correct. It's also good for the passenger, I think, as a consumer because if you advertise you have these things, you need to provide them. You can't half the train length at the last minute because people will... Uh, people have bought a specific service not just the journey so I think it is I mean, even just talking about it I mean, like we talk about you know, 55 million fares different transport providers it is complex and I don't think we've answered complex. it well no what moves us will have to just be about how well I mean all the future mobility all the, all the types of mobility should be coming together into one, oh, one portal at some point, including aviation, in the dreamland future. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good? I think so. I don't think we've answered the questions, but... <laughs> but now you know what we're talking about. <laughs> it's been useful to be, or it's, it's been useful to be at Smart Rail, it's been useful to be in Munich and explore... Yes. What uh, moves us and mobility as a service. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Now, did you enjoy that? Because tune in for our next one where we will be at where, Johanna? And um, we're going to be part of a Rear Trailblazers event where we're going to be exploring delivering diversity and inclusive inclusivity initiatives in rail.